This podcast was brought to you by withaim.co. Welcome back to Vanishing Shadows. In our latest episode, Lee finds herself on the mend, thanks to Hazel's thoughtful care. But the heart of our story beats stronger when she crosses paths again with Jesse, the compassionate stranger from the auto shop. Their unexpected evening together opens up new possibilities, stirring a chemistry that's hard to ignore. What does this mean for Lee's turbulent journey? Join us in this episode to explore the twists and turns of Lee's life, where new connections spark hope and change. In sociological terms, they call it the fundamental attribution error. Basically, it means that when people see someone in a bad situation, they tend to believe that individual brought it on themselves. What did I think of the homeless before I became one of them? Not much is the short answer. This is the story of Lee Crawford and how a series of bad choices flipped her life upside down. But what if there's an escape? One night, sleeping in her car with an ocean view, a desperate cry shattered the silence. I'm sorry. And then I hear a splash. What the hell is this woman doing? It's just April. The Pacific will be frigid. If I hadn't heard her cries... This stranger would have drowned, as she clearly intended. You should have left me. I don't want to be here. You're listening to Vanishing Shadows. This is Episode 5, Lee's Glimmer of Romance and Rescue. The I-5 stretches out before me. Now familiar fast food joints and strip malls zipping by my window. I have four empty hours until my shift starts. For once, I am rested and nourished. And despite this cold, I'm filled with a giddy energy. I've met someone. Someone thoughtful and considerate and hot as hell. Even with the mess I've made of my life, my desperate circumstances, I feel a sense of optimism. The potential of romance is startling in its power. I'm still homeless. My future is still bleak. But I can't quell the buoyant feeling in my belly. In my past life, My real life. I would have called Teresa. My sister would have let me gush about Jesse, shared my excitement, while asking probing, protective questions. For years, she'd wanted me to find a solid guy to ground me in my frenetic existence. Although, I'm not sure Jesse would qualify in my sister's eyes. Would a personal trainer with a basement apartment and a leased car be up to her standards? Teresa had found her guy. Clark was, still is, a plastic surgeon. Older, stable, attractive in his academic leather-and-tweed way. She'd moved into his spacious home on Long Island, taken to her role as mom to his two chocolate labs. I only met Clark three times. Once for coffee in Midtown, once at their elegant engagement party, and once when he walked into my restaurant with another woman. He'd had no idea that he was bringing this girl, she was barely legal, into his future sister-in-law's establishment. Teresa had to have mentioned the aviary, but men like Dr. Clark Baylor didn't pay attention to such details. I'd watched from the kitchen, my stomach churning as my sister's fiancé openly pawed at this young woman. Something about her age, her outfit, and her plucky demeanor made me wonder if he was paying her. I reached for the house phone, about to call Teresa. 
when I froze. A dark, ugly feeling descends as I remember what I did next. I try to shake it off, but it creeps into my psyche. My business was struggling by then. I was already falling behind on bills and payments. Damon was already circling. Still, the choice I made in that moment was self-serving, ugly, and just plain wrong. I hung up the phone and pulled my cell out of my back pocket. Surreptitiously, I photographed Clark and his side bitch as they kissed and cuddled at their secluded table. And then I tried to blackmail him with the photos. My plan was to get the money and then tell Teresa about the cheating anyway. I still wanted to protect my sister. But it backfired. Clark fell on his sword, confessed his transgressions to his fiance, promised to go to therapy. He was a sex addict, apparently. What he had done was forgivable. What I had done was not. Instead of saving my only sibling, my best friend, I had tried to save myself. Teresa didn't believe that I would have told her the truth after Clark paid up. What I had done was sickening. She had every right to excise me from her life. Our parents took her side, of course. They didn't overtly cut me off, but their judgment and disdain were palpable. That's why it was so easy for me to vanish. No one cared enough to look for me. Is that why I'm driving back toward the beach? Toward Hazel? She is the closest thing I have to a friend or confidant. Perhaps she is a second chance for me. I will not hurt or betray her. I won't put my own selfish interests before hers. And I have already saved Hazel's life. The bond between us is profound. Exiting off the highway, I navigate through the old-growth fir and cedar trees toward the ocean. Hazel is probably worried about me. Yesterday, she'd found me trembling and feverish. This morning, when she went for her run, I wasn't there. She might think the worst. That I was too weak to drive to my usual camp. That I am in the hospital, or even dead. If she comes to check on me this afternoon, I want to be there. I've just parked in the secluded spot when I realize it's Saturday. Hazel's weekend routine is unfamiliar to me. Her husband will be home from his high-powered job. Perhaps he won't let her leave the house? This makes me wonder how he controls her. Is the abuse strictly physical? Does he withhold affection or money? Whatever he does, it's bad enough that she wanted to drown herself. Securing my belongings in the trunk, I make my way down the steep trail to the beach. The rocky cove is deserted, as it always is. The residents of this Tony neighborhood are at the gym, or the yoga studio, or on the massage table. They're out for brunch, or seeing their dermatologist, or on a beach in Hawaii. If they are at home, they're clearly content to watch the white-capped ocean from the comfort of plush sofas, through massive picture windows. But they can't hear the roar of the waves, feel the ocean breeze on their faces, smell the briny scent of the sea. If I lived in such luxury, would I give this up? I settle onto that same driftwood log, rub the soft, silvery surface with my fingers. No. When I have a comfortable home again, I will still come to the beach. A shiver runs through me and I rub the backs of my arms, but it's not a chill. Jesse has wormed his way back into my mind. A pleasant touch of memory. His handsome face 
his kindness, the chemistry between us. Will he come to the diner tonight, or is that too soon? I don't want to play games. Don't want him to wait until tomorrow or the next day so he doesn't appear too keen. If he doesn't come until Thursday, I'll have the day off. The possibility that I might miss his visit, that he might not come at all, fills me with panic. It is stupid to be so enamored with the man I just met. But this morning, having tea and a muffin in his warm apartment, the way he'd kissed my forehead in his car, it's the happiest I have felt in months. It is then that I spot her. Hazel is picking her way across an outcropping of rocks farther down the beach. There must be another access point farther south. She hasn't noticed me and seems lost in thought. I stand and wave. Hazel, I call, the wind grasping my voice, pulling it away. But she turns. A small smile chases away her haunted expression, but not before I clock it. She continues across the rocks toward me. Her greeting is a hug. I was worried about you, she says, holding me at arm's length. Are you feeling better? Yeah. My chest warms with her concern. That's why I came back. I didn't want you to worry. We settle onto the driftwood log. Where were you last night? Hazel asks. I stayed at a friend's. It comes out giddy and girlish. Oh? She arches an eyebrow at me. Who's the friend? His name's Jesse. I tell her about the orange. How Jesse found me at the diner. How we'd gone for a drink. I was too groggy to drive, so he took me home. But nothing happened. He slept on the sofa. You like this guy. It's a statement, not a question. We've just met, but he's really nice. And thoughtful. And so sexy. What's his last name? Have you Googled him? Without a smartphone or a computer, that simple universal background check has become a hassle for me. And I never thought to ask his last name. Not yet, I say. You need to be careful, Lee. Hazel's pretty face is dark. Sometimes people aren't who they say they are. I should know. This isn't about me. And this isn't about Jesse. What happened with you and Benjamin? I ask. Her head is lowered, eyes fixed on the rocky beach. Do you know what total power exchange is? No. Neither did I. She looks at me then, her dark eyes shiny. It's a type of dominant-submissive relationship. Normally, couples have scenes, you know, moments where they play those roles. With TPE, it's 24-7. God. It's usually consensual. If it works for both partners, then great. But it stopped working for me a long time ago. And Benjamin stopped caring what I wanted. I'm without words. Still unsure of what it all means. But Hazel continues. When we first got together, we had a master-slave contract. I outlined my limits, things that I would and wouldn't do. He agreed to keep me safe, to never go too far. Aftercare was important to me. Cuddles and reassurance. But then, Benjamin broke the rules. He hurt me out of anger, 
He manipulated me and bullied me. And there was nothing I could do about it. My lack of consent made it more exciting for him. My throat feels swollen. The words come out a croak. Does he abuse you? In response, she pulls down the back of her pants. I can just see the black and blue lashings on her buttocks. Oh, God, Hazel. I'm so sorry. The physical abuse isn't the worst of it. It's the mental torture, the constant fear. If he saw me right now, talking to you, I'd be locked up. Locked up where? How? There's a soundproof room in our basement. It has no windows and a fortified door. That's where he puts me when I've displeased him. That's where he flogs me. That's horrific. You have to leave. I can't. He'd kill me. And our house is a fortress. There are cameras everywhere. He watches me all day from the office. He controls everything I do. I'm allowed to go for a run each day, to the gym or yoga a few times a week. Sometimes he lets me go for lunch with friends, but only women he approves of. You should go to the police then. She snorts. Benjamin is powerful and connected. The police won't take my side in this. She swivels toward me, her eyes searching mine. How did you do it? How did you disappear? For me, there was no forethought or strategy. And it's simple when no one cares about you. I just... walked away. It's not going to be that easy for me. She reaches for my hand, grasps it so tightly it hurts. Will you help me? Of course, I say, but the words tremble. How can I help her when I'm barely surviving myself? I'm so glad we met, Lee. When you saved me, I knew. We were meant to find each other. Does that sound corny? It should, but it doesn't. It feels true. I shake my head. She checks her Apple Watch and stands. Shit, I have to go. I'm only allowed 20 minutes on the beach. She sprints for the trail, turns back at its mouth. See you tomorrow? I smile through my trepidation. Of course. We'll be back to Daily Bedtime Tales right after this message. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. What if you could share your story with the world? What if you could inspire others with your passion, your message, or your vision? What if you had a team to help you craft the perfect story for your business or brand? Well, you can. And we at With AIM are here to make it happen. With AIM is more than just a podcast production company. We are your storytellers. 
your voice, and your partner in creating a podcast that will captivate your audience, showcase your brand's personality, and build a lasting relationship with your customers. So don't let your story go untold. Start your podcast today. Visit with aim.co slash podcast to learn more. That's with aim.co forward slash podcast. With AIM, be the voice of your brand. When Jesse walks into the diner on Tuesday near the end of my shift, my first feeling is relief. In the three days since I last saw him, I'd begun to worry. If he'd discovered that I was homeless, on the run, he'd want nothing to do with me. I couldn't blame him for it. And Hazel's words of warning had sifted through my thoughts. Perhaps Jesse wasn't the tender, considerate guy I thought he was. Maybe he didn't care about me after all. My friend had planted a seed of doubt, and Jesse's failure to appear had let it fester. Every day, I'd made the effort to shower and apply the makeup Hazel had given me. For nothing. But now he's here, looking casual and sexy and happy to see me. Hey, he says, sliding onto a stool at the bar. Are you off at midnight? I tell him I am. Want to grab something to eat? There's a great late-night ramen bar a few blocks from here. Or we could go somewhere closer to your place. Ramen sounds great. Jesse orders a coffee, nurses it as I finish my shift with one eye trained on the clock. A table of drunk college kids is rude to me, and I see Jesse's posture stiffen, feel him watching the situation. It's nothing I can't handle, but his protectiveness warms me. It's been a long time since someone looked out for me. I drop off their bill, jittery with anticipation. We're about to go on a real date. A date date. With food. And I'm not going to nod off on him this time. If I end up back at Jesse's apartment, it will be because I choose to go. When I've clocked out, Jesse suggests we walk. It's a nice night. And I'll walk you back to your car after. It's respectful, even chivalrous. But part of me is hoping I'll spend the night with him. His soft bed, the coffee and muffins. And now that I'm feeling better, I can't deny my attraction to him. My sex drive had been extinguished by the stress of running away, of surviving without a home. But as I stroll the streets with Jesse's body mere inches away, it returns with a vengeance. Pheromones are at work. And I'm hungry for physical affection, starved for that connection. The restaurant is tiny with rough-hewn wooden booths, the windows coated with steam from the boiling vats of soup. We are led to a cramped table near the kitchen, where we order two bowls of the special and two frosty Japanese beers. As our waitress leaves, Jesse speaks. I would have come to see you sooner, but I knew you were sick. I thought I should let you recover. Did you take some time off? So he hadn't forgotten about me. I bounced back pretty quickly, I say. Thanks to that orange. He chuckles, though the joke is overdone now. Two brown bottles of beer are plunked on the table. We clink them together and drink. The liquid is cold and sharp and delicious. The first sip of alcohol settles my nerves, but I must take it in slowly. Where did you grow up, Lee? It's a normal first or sort of second date question, but I've grown used to being guarded. I can't see any harm in talking about my background now, though. 
Jesse is a safe space. In upstate New York, I moved to the city for college and stayed. And opened your restaurant, he says, remembering our last conversation. What about you? I ask. Spokane, he replies. I never went far. My mom still lives there, and my sister and her kids. It's nice to be close to family. Hmm. It's ambiguous, but implies agreement. You must miss yours. Yeah, I say, and it's true. But we're not that close. The ramen lands in front of us before Jesse can ask me to elaborate. We doctor our bowls with garlic paste and furikake, a Japanese seasoning made with toasted sesame seeds and nori. As I stir the soup with my chopsticks, I steer the conversation away from me. I'm worried about a friend of mine. It's a dark topic for a date, but I like how it sounds. Normal. Like a girl who lives in an apartment and has a social life. I think she's in an abusive relationship. Oh no, he says, and his handsome face contorts with empathy. She needs to leave. She says it's complicated. She wants me to help her. Help her how? Over the past few days, Hazel and I had plotted her escape. Most mornings, she had tapped on my window, dressed in her jogging outfit, carrying whatever breakfast she could pilfer from her kitchen. We'd moved to our silvery log and eaten our fruit or rolls or granola bars, the morning sky pale and promising as we hatched a plan. You'll need cash, I told her a couple of days ago. Credit cards can be easily traced. Her hands worried at the zipper of her hoodie. I don't have my own bank account. But there's a cash and a safe in Benjamin's study, if I can get into it. I could sell some jewelry. Or another Netske. What did you get for yours? I still haven't sold it. The truth is, I've attached sentimental value to the smooth bone carving. It's silly, but part of me feels that if I let it go, I'll lose Hazel. But I'm going to lose her anyway. That's what saving her means. I haven't had time to sell it, I fibbed. What about fake ID? She asked. How did you get yours? I didn't think that far ahead, I admitted. I just left. And then all my ID was stolen. I'll figure it out, she promised. I'll get documents for both of us. A whole new identity. She paused for just a breath if you want that. She was offering me a chance to start over, as a new person, unabashed and unafraid, to put all my failures and mistakes behind me, to wipe the slate clean. It meant giving up any hope of reuniting with my sister and my parents. But after what I'd done, there was no hope. They would never forgive me. Yeah, I want that. Okay. She stood. Thank you, Lee. I'd smiled. Of course. But I didn't know why she was thanking me. Jessie's next question brings me back to the room. Does she want to stay with you? My place is really small. Emphasis on the really. She needs cash and documents. Can you help with that? I hope so. I mean... I'll do what I can.
My mom was abused by my stepfather, he says. Sadness in those golden eyes. No woman should ever have to live that way. He's right. Hazel's situation is unbearable, and I'm in a unique position to help. If anyone knows how to disappear, to live an anonymous life, it's me. And it's a chance to make up for the way I hurt my sister, even if it means losing my only friend. The conversation takes a lighter turn as we eat our soup with porcelain spoons, twirling noodles on chopsticks. Jesse orders another beer, but I abstain. When the meal is finished, I fish for the night's tips, but Jesse insists on paying. I asked you out, he says. It's on me. Thank you. Our eyes meet and I'm drawn in by his warm gaze. There's a flutter, subtle, like butterfly wings, in my low belly. We stroll back toward the diner, savoring the time together. At least I am. But while our progress is slow, my mind is racing. Would it be too forward to suggest a nightcap at his place? I've already slept over, so it's not out of the question. But I don't want to come on too strong. One night stands were common in my old life, but this feels different. It feels like potential. We approach Uncle Jack's, the fluorescent lighting and noise of late night diners most of them drunk, spill into the street. As we pass, Jesse's hand slips into mine, and I like the way it feels. Like we are together, a couple even. When we reach the alleyway, we turn. It is dark, strongly scented with cooking and garbage. Behind a dumpster, there are two men, smoking something, shooting up. But Jesse's presence, his strong hand in mine, makes me feel safe. Here we are, he says, stopping near my Corolla. I swallow. All the words I want to say stuck in my mouth like glue. Finally, I manage to speak. How about... But his lips come down on mine. His mouth is warm and soft and tastes of beer. I melt into him, my arms sliding around his waist. I haven't been touched, held, caressed in so long. His hands are in my hair, cradling the back of my head, and my knees weaken. My desire is like hunger, like thirst, startling in its intensity. I press myself against him, hands tugging at his hips. Abruptly, he pulls away. I should go. My cheeks burn. I feel embarrassed by my own lust. Yeah, I mumble. Me too. His fingers tilt my chin up so our eyes meet. I like you, Lee. I like you too. He kisses me again, once, softly, and steps back. It's my cue to get into my car and leave. I move robotically to the driver's side and open the door. As I'm about to get in, he says... Have a good sleep. He thinks I'm going home to a warm bed, to cuddle under soft blankets, to think about him. He has no idea that I'll be cold and alone, frightened and on edge, that I'll sip whiskey to numb myself, that I'll cradle a hunting knife in my lap. 
You too, I say, and my voice wobbles. I slide into the car and close the door. Thank you for tuning in to this part of the story. Don't forget to follow Daily Bedtime Tales so you won't miss out on what happens next in this compelling narrative.